Father, as we come to your word together, open our hearts, not for more information, not for stories, or prayers, or things that may distract us, or maybe give us an edge in some way, but open our hearts, Lord, for whatever healing is required there. Where we have failed you, where we have messed up our lives, where we are broken, that's the very place we want you to speak to today, through your Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing. Nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is the parable that Nathan told to David. It had been told because David was living in denial, pretending that he had not sinned. This morning we want to think how sin comes into all of our lives. Sin comes into our lives at one time or another, in one way or another. To every person in this room, sin has come. It's already come. It's come multiple times, and it is a problem. It is a serious problem. Sin is horrible. Sin is deadly. Sin distances us from God. The God who loves us. The God who wants so much more for us than that. And this morning as we continue the story, I want us to think about that devastating effects of sin. Especially unconfessed sin. Sin is a problem, but it's not the only problem. Sin is a great problem, but the issue is bigger when we think about what we do after we sin. After we have sinned, because we will sin, that's a given. 
Hopefully we will sin less and less as we go along, as we grow stronger in the Lord, as our faith matures. But we will sin. And we will continue sinning at various points in our lives until the day that we die, until the day that Jesus comes. So what follows sin when we don't confess it so that God can remove its shame and guilt from our lives? King David's fall into sin began when he stayed home from the war. Here was this warrior king, a man of war who knew all about war, who had been victorious in many wars, and is actually conquering the Ammonites. And at some point he says, okay, I'm going back home. And he left his troops there to fight the city of Rabbah. And uh, he left Joab in charge. And he said, you guys go on without me. I'm going back home for a while. And he goes back to the palace. And sin entered the picture. The wheels fell off. Everything changed in his life. This inactivity, this boredom, <laughs> this set into David's life, whatever was going on, any, any way that he was maybe just pulling back a little bit from God, pulling back a little bit from the vision that God had for his life, pulling back just a little bit, was a killer to him because he allowed himself to be idle. He lost his focus. He lost his sense of purpose. And so at home one evening, the Bible says he got up from his bed. That is, he had gone to bed, but he wasn't sleeping very well. He was restless. And so sometime that evening, he got back up and he's walking around the roof of the palace. He's looking down over the city of Jerusalem. David is no longer where God wants him to be. He is no longer doing what God wants him to do. And he's leaving himself wide open to various temptations in his life. And you know what happened. He looked down from the roof of that palace and he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath at her house. She figured that was safe because nobody else is up right now. But the king was and the king saw her. David was tempted to sin by looking at her, and he looked too long. And he decided because he was king, he could send for her. And so he brought her to the palace, and he slept with her. He should have turned away, but he didn't. Soon he acted upon his desires, and as king, with the power, he exerted that power, and he sinned, and he caused her to sin. David slept with Bathsheba pretended as if nothing would come of it, sent her home. But in a few weeks, maybe a month or so, she let him know that she was pregnant. So now the problem is amplified. Now things have gotten a little bit difficult. This was not what he had bargained for. This is not how he thought sin would turn out. And so he had to change things a bit. He knew that her husband was Uriah, that he was his faithful person of integrity, this soldier fighting with the troops against the Ammonites. And so he sent for him, had him come home, and he thought, I'll just send Uriah home tonight. He'll sleep with his wife tonight. Nobody will be the wiser. They'll even think that the baby, or at least Uriah will, is his when the baby is born. But Uriah is too honorable for that. And when David dismisses him and says, go home, he doesn't go home. He sleeps outside the entrance to the palace. He stays with the other men, the other soldiers. The next morning, he asks you, what's going on? Why wouldn't you go home? And he says, well, how could I do that? The other men are down fighting. I could not go home and sleep with my wife. I could not go home and enjoy the benefits of home while the rest of the troops and the Ark of Israel is at the battlefield. David tries a second attempt. He gets Uriah drunk. He says, come and eat and drink with me. 
make merry with me. And he gets him as drunk as he could, and he tries to send him home again. Now maybe he'll stumble home, but he still has too much integrity to go home. And so David has to come up with another plan, and that plan is devious. That plan is deadly. He sends Uriah back to the front with a word to Joab, the commander. Put Uriah out in the fiercest place of the fighting, and then have the other soldiers withdraw. Leave him out there alone so that he'll be cut down by the enemy. And in a slick way, a slick move, what seems to be just a really sharp plan, David has Uriah murdered on the battlefield. Well, time of sorrow, time of weeping happens. After that time is over, David decides to take Bathsheba's own wife. She's pregnant. Now she's maybe two, three months pregnant, maybe even longer. And she becomes his wife. And everybody nearby obviously knows what's going on. How could she already come to that place already pregnant? And if they knew anything of the story, they knew that she had come there and spent a night. They knew that Uriah had not been home for months. And a lot of questions were flying around in their minds, but nobody is saying anything. Nobody is saying anything to David. He's king, after all. And now he needs to be confronted. I want you to think about something from David's story right now, and that is that sin is never content to stop at once, is it? If you sin, then you have to sin again. If you leave that alone, you don't confess it, you don't get it right with God, then it progresses. It's like telling a lie. You tell one lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover up that one because somebody might see through the first one. And then you tell a third one, and then a fourth, and a compulsive liar, a habitual liar, eventually gets to the point where they don't even know what the truth is. They've told so many, they don't know how to get out of this web of lies they've spun themselves. And that's where David is with this sin. It's just getting deeper and deeper. Sin is progressing. Sin is ruining everything in its path. So David just slacked off a little bit. Then he saw something he shouldn't have. He took what wasn't his. And then he had to cover the whole thing up. David was in the grips of denial. So Nathan, the prophet, was sent to hold him accountable. Nathan told him the parable that we read at the beginning. He hoped that David still knew right from wrong. He hoped that David would respond because this is the king after all. And David did. David acknowledged. David said, I have sinned. And not only I have sinned, I have sinned against the Lord. And he repents. Amazingly, when David confessed, forgiveness was given. David is completely forgiven of his sin, and the Lord acknowledges that. But Nathan tells him right there that he has to pay the consequences of that sin. There are still things that are going to come as a result of sin. And even when we are forgiven by the grace of God, there are consequences that follow the sins of our lives. The child died. Nathan said it would. And it came true. Even though David prayed for several days that God would change his mind, that God would spare the little boy, he didn't. He did exactly what he said he would do as punishment for their sin. In addition, David was told that the sword would never leave his family, and that is true because David's family from this time on experiences a lot of troubles. He is restored. He is made the king of Israel and and able to function in, in a great way, but yet his family suffered greatly. Amnon, one of his sons, raped his sister, half sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, another son, killed Amnon in revenge. Later, another son, Adonijah, 
tried to usurp his throne. Absalom tried to usurp his throne. And, and so there's all these different things going on. Absalom dies in his, his time of trying to take over the throne. And then Adonijah dies when King Solomon finally becomes king. And he's still trying to under, and undercut the throne. And he has to be killed. And so that sword did not depart from David's family, just as Nathan had said. Thankfully, to show God's complete forgiveness of David, David's marriage with Bathsheba is made good. They produce four more children. The last of these is Solomon, who became the next king of Israel. In addition, we find Bathsheba's name mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And David is mentioned at the end of our Bible in Hebrews 11, along with those other great heroes of the faith. There is David's name, even though he had committed these grievous sins, even though he committed adultery and murder, because he was restored to his relationship with God and to leadership in his nation and in his family. Sin is horrible, isn't it? Sin is universal. Sin is deadly. But sin is forgivable, after all. Sin is forgivable. Any sin can be forgiven. And that's good news for us because we are sinners. Everybody in this room is a sinner. All of us have a sin nature, don't we? All of us have this fleshly nature that constantly is looking out for itself, constantly looking out for our selfish ways and our self-fulfilled dreams. We had a good example of that on Thanksgiving Day. Our whole family had gathered over at uh, Jenna and Rem's house and we had, I don't know how many people, and one of the guys that rents from them was there too, so maybe 12, 14 people, I don't know, had this huge feast. And uh, afterwards, we're, we're just kind of sitting around, you know, you have to lean back on the couch and try and, and make that food digest somehow. And we're just sitting there enjoying it. I went in to play with the granddaughters for a while in the front room. And I come back in about, you know, three hours after we've eaten, somebody's suggesting that we have something else to eat, you know, go back and, you know, get some of the leftovers. And, and uh, I said something about, well, that's great, you know, because this, this is really good. And I was looking forward to having some more of the turkey because I hadn't very much. And they said, well, didn't you hear what we were talking about? I said, well, what are you talking about? I was over in the other room. I said, well, we had some things because they didn't fit in the refrigerator. We had to put them out on the back porch. And uh, back there sitting on top of the cooler was all the turkey. Somebody let out the dogs. <laughs> and they were only out there five minutes. But when we went to get the food, Grace had eaten every bit of the turkey. I said, really? <laughs> and everybody, fortunately, handled that very graciously. I'm glad her name is Grace, because that kind of reminded us, don't get mad at the dog. Don't kill the dog. <laughs> but all the turkey was gone. In like two or three minutes, she had wolfed it all down. It was gone. That was her nature. And nobody blamed that dog for that. Nobody said, you know, that's your fault. You should have been able to resist that <laughs> because dogs aren't going to resist a plate full of turkey like that left out in the open for them about this far off the ground. <laughs> That's just where she, her head is, you know. She just went into that feeding frenzy, I'm sure. We have a nature like that. Thankfully, we can make better choices than that. And we know that there's a law, and we know that there's a plan, and we know that there is a design, and we know that we are equipped, we are empowered by God to say no to the things we need to say no to. Grace didn't know those things. But we do. And that sinful nature is something hard to control. We need to think about that. We need to have a plan for that. God knows that we all will sin because of our sin nature. And it breaks His heart, doesn't it? It breaks His heart to watch His children 
you know, tear into something they shouldn't tear into, something that's going to hurt them, it's going to hurt the people they love and hurt their witness and, and hurt his kingdom. And God watches this happen over and over again, these self-destructive things that we do in our lives, and we don't learn from them sometimes for quite a while. And sometimes we live in denial like David. But you know, he wants to forgive. That sin nature, those problems we fall into from time to time, doesn't prevent him from loving us so much that he wanted some way to forgive us. And he gives us a remarkable gift called forgiveness. But the thing is, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to confess our sin. We have to turn from our sin in order for that forgiveness to mean anything. Otherwise, it's just kind of a blanket grace, you know. Everybody's forgiven. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Sin is horrible. Sin is deadly. Sin is universal. And sin must be dealt with, and so Jesus did. And Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But to be forgiven, we have to confess our sin. We have to acknowledge it and repent of it. Because if we don't, it's just hanging out there. And when sin hangs out there, it's not happy to be alone. It needs some company. It needs another sin and another sin. And it just wants to progress. It just wants to spiral. It just wants to grab into our lives like tentacles that just grab us to the point where we can't break free. And God wants that to never happen again in your life or mine. One of the most remarkable promises of the Bible then is first in First John 8, 1, 8, and 9. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, what God is after is not perfection. He wants us to never sin again, but he knows that we will. He knows that because of our nature, because of our frailty, because of our feebleness, because of of the lack of strength and faith and where we should be, but we're not yet, that we're going to fail. We're going to sin. But what is critical for us to learn is that when we fail, that we immediately turn back to God and we confess that sin and we repent. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that there are two different kinds of sorrow when we get caught. There is a sorrow that is worldly sorrow, and it's only the sorrow that we got caught. But there is a godly sorrow that is the sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow just brings death. You ever got your hand caught in the cookie jar and you were upset, you were ashamed, you were embarrassed, but the next day you want to go back to the cookie jar? That was worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow produces death because you never break the cycle. You never get beyond that. You keep repeating the same stupid mistake over and over, year after year. But godly sorrow leads to repentance and to salvation and no regrets. Because godly sorrow says, not only am I sorry that I got caught, but I'm sorry, God, because I hurt you. I rebelled against you. I forgot what your will was. I forgot that you had a better plan than I do. And it turns from all that and turns back to God and gets the relationship with God back where it needs to be. And that's what needs to happen every time you or I sin. God has laid a plan out for our lives 
to give us the best life possible, but sometimes we think we know better than God. And when we do that, we sin. And the Bible says that sin leads to death. The result of sin is both physical death and spiritual or eternal death, being separated from God for eternity. But God sent His Son so that we could be forgiven and we could learn to not keep making those same mistakes over and over again. After we are forgiven, initially by Christ, after we are set free from our sins, the opportunity is for sin will be there day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until the day we finally die. We are tempted in many ways to rebel against God's wishes and to choose our own way to live because we still have free will after all. We, we still can choose. The most godly person still needs to be on their guard because any day they could slip up. Even though they have grown in the grace of God, even though they've grown in the knowledge of the Word of God, even though they have a prayer life that is phenomenal, even though everybody respects them and admires them, and we, we almost stand in awe of what they have ch- achieved in their relationship with God, they still need to guard their hearts and guard their soul because every day is a new day with an opportunity to sin and maybe even to ruin it all because worldly sorrow leads to death, but a true godly sorrow brings us back in confession and repentance to God. King David, even after he had committed murder, even after he committed adultery, two of the biggies in our book, was restored as a man of God when he confessed his sins and he chose again to follow God with all his heart. So even a person that has gone as far into sin as we could imagine can be turned back if they will come back to God in confession and repentance. The consequences of their sin may remain as they did in David's life, but they can be restored again to a place of witness, even a place of leadership as David was after they have sinned. God wants us to know that no matter what we have done, we can be forgiven of that. We can be restored as a child of God. There may be someone here today, I don't know your lives, who feels like there is no way I could ever be forgiven. I have done something so terrible that there is no way God could love me. There is no way God could, could, could forgive me. There is no way God could restore my life. I want you to know that if he could restore King David, he could restore you. I want you to know, and the Word of God wants you to know, that no matter what you have done, you can be forgiven because that's not the question. The question is, will you confess that sin, will you acknowledge that sin, and will you turn from it? And that must be the constant pattern of our lives. We must be careful about the choices we make. Those choices involving sin and temptation that come to us every day. We must put up our defenses. And we must strengthen our faith. We must strengthen our hearts with God's Word and with prayer and with fellowship with other Christians who can help us. We must guard against our fleshly nature that is prone to sin. It desires sin, and so we have to fight that every day. And we must choose daily to follow God rather than our own hearts. The Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. That is, don't give it anything. Don't go after what it wants to go after. Deny yourself those things that are, that are selfish pleasures, that are self-fulfilling dreams. The Bible says, take every thought captive. 
Guard your thoughts. Guard your attitude so you'll not stray from the path God's laid out for us. Be careful about what you see, what you hear, what you read, what you think about. Live in the world, but be not of the world. And even when we take all these precautions, we're still going to sin. You could be the most, uh, the most godly person. You could be the most diligent person. You could be the most disciplined person in all of these things and still sin sometimes. What then? What do you do? The only thing you could do, the best thing you could do, is to come back to God and confess that. What follows sin? When we don't confess it so God can remove its shame and guilt? Death. What follows sin when it is unforgiven? Hell. It's pretty plain, it's pretty simple, it's pretty ugly. But what follows sin when that person acknowledges their sin and confesses it to God and repents of that sin? Then they are restored and they are brought to strength in their lives that they never had before. And they are made a greater witness for God because God's grace is demonstrated and manifested in their lives as they are forgiven and God uses them to His glory. I want to ask you to pray with me as we finish up this sermon. And as we pray, I want to read some of the words from Psalm 51. And I want you to hear these words. These are the words that David wrote when he was brought before God in confession and repentance at the time that Nathan confronted him. Psalm 51, just a few words from there. Would you pray with me, please? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. To sustain me. Father, as we've read the story and we've heard about the confession and repentance of David, we thank you for his example because that gives us hope, that gives us encouragement, that helps us to believe that you could forgive someone like me, someone like the people in this room. Someone like those in this world that have felt like there is no way anybody could ever love them or forgive them. Because you can. You can forgive any sin. And you have proven your willingness to do that. You have even taken the penalty of that sin so that we do not have to bear it. Today we put our confidence in Jesus. We put our, our hopes in Jesus Christ who loved us enough to die for. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that needs the forgiveness that they could have through you and have never 
believed in Jesus, never entrusted their lives to Jesus, may they do that today. And if we are here today and we've been a Christian for a while and we're struggling and we're falling into all kinds of problems in our lives and that sin's actually spiraling and progressing, may this be a day that we are called back in repentance to you. That we are confronted by your word even as Nathan confronted King David. And we would turn to you with the same heart, with the same humility that David showed that day. I have sinned against the Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we sing together today. Uh, there may be a decision you need to, to share. You can come up and share that decision. Maybe you just want to come up and, and uh, have us pray with you after the service today. Maybe the decision is, is a decision to follow Christ and to surrender to Jesus Christ to believe in Him, to confess Him as your Lord and Savior, turning away from your sins, repenting, being baptized into Christ, and God will forgive your sin and cleanse you, just as He promised in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And you can begin your life today as a follower of Christ. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be bumpy. There's going to be sins that will still be a part of your life. But now you've learned what to do. You've learned how to keep close to God. Because of His mercies, we can even come before Him today. So we're going to sing about His mercies. If you have a decision to share, if you need prayer, just come up while we're singing today. And uh, we'll just let everybody know what, what, what's happening. You don't need to speak to everyone. Just come up and acknowledge that today. And uh, we'll pray for you today. So let's stand together.